Welcome to Hope Solo Speaks. I'm your host, Hope Solo. I gave a very difficult, honest, and heartfelt podcast for you after I left rehab last year. I spoke about the struggles of having twins during a pandemic, not having a support system nearby, a lack of self-care, and the possibility of having, to some degree, postpartum depression. After the episode, thousands, literally thousands of people reached out to me. Many told me about their downfalls and struggles during the pandemic with either alcohol or marriages and relationships. Many spoke to me about their unique struggles during this very strange time that we all had to navigate through. Many people reached out to me to tell me their own stories post-pregnancy and after the birth of their child. I had just as many men reach out to me as I did women after leaving rehab to show me understanding, compassion, and empathy. I found this profound. Society is often very quiet about postpartum depression. Even my dear friends didn't speak to me about it until years later and only when I had my own struggles. It became very apparent to me that this topic was also vastly important to the men, to the fathers who also had a major life change by having children. A family, by definition, is a group of one or more parents and their children living together as a unit. I think the key word in this definition of family is unit. We are, of course, regarded as individuals, single and hopefully complete. But we can also form an individual component of a larger or more complex whole. As a unit, we all must be at our best for the family to function in the greatest state of happiness. For me, this means living in the moment, not letting moments just pass, not allowing life to become a blur. Life is much too short for us to take for granted any of the moments we get to share with our loved ones. And as we say, to live life in every breath. Every single day counts. Today, I am bringing on two of the most knowledgeable doctors regarding postpartum depression. Men, the topics I speak about affects all of us. And women, men too, do get the baby blues. Let's learn more about this topic that is so rarely spoken about openly. Let's welcome Dr. Clayton Schumann and Dr. Alex Friedman Peel. Dr. Schumann is an implementation scientist and health services researcher focused on improving healthcare quality, safety, and outcomes and reducing health disparities. He is also an assistant professor at the University of Michigan School of Nursing. Dr. Peel is a clinical lecturer in obstetrics and gynecology and a national clinician scholar at the University of Michigan. She received her medical degree from the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in 2014 and a Master's of Science in Health and Health Policy at the University of Michigan in 2019. Dr. Schumann and Dr. Peel led a study at the University of Michigan on how the COVID-19 pandemic affected rates of postpartum depression. Dr. Schumann, Dr. Peel, thank you so much for joining us today on Hope Solo Speaks. Uh, I, I was truly fascinated by your study that, that I happened to come across. Um, and I, I really found it that it was my duty to help disseminate some of this, this information. Most of the listeners right now, uh, they know what postpartum depression is, or they think they know what it is. Um, and I wanted to have you on here today to help us further understand it. But before we dive in deeper, my husband was the first to say, he said, you know, if I turned on your show right now and this was the topic, you would lose probably 50% of your audience. You would lose your male fans. And this show is a lot about sports. We do heavy topics. We do light topics. We do a lot of different topics that are very important to me. And this is one of them. And so right at the beginning, I would like you guys to educate everybody in why this topic is important, not just to women, but to men as well. Thanks so much for having us today, Hope. And we're really excited to help share information on not just postpartum depression for moms, but also for all parents. Um, we know that postpartum depression is really common in birthing people. About one in five to one in eight people experience it. But we're also becoming increasingly aware of how this affects dads. About one in 10 dads report also experiencing mood symptoms after the birth of their child. 
And so this is really an issue for all of your listeners, not just half. Of course. Um, I, I do know uh, that most everybody that I've spoken with has known somebody who's been affected by postpartum depression. So as you said, it affects, um, you know, our mothers, our sisters, it affects also, you know, the brothers and the families and it affects the kids as well. So this is a very important topic because it is truly the family nucleus and, and it's the health of that family. So um, everybody, men, hold on to your pants stay on the show, listen, because it is really important to, to, even if you're not going through it yourself, to support those around you. Um, now, postpartum depression, can you please explain what exactly it is and how it is diagnosed? As an OBGYN, I unfortunately um, take care of postpartum depression for my patients quite frequently. And I first want to start by saying it doesn't only affect people after birth. Depression, anxiety, other mood disorders can happen throughout the pregnancy and also in the year after birth. And so really a broad range of time that we're thinking about. It's normal for people to experience mood changes over the course of pregnancy and after delivery. It's an eventful time filled with physical changes, emotional changes, social changes with a growing family. But we start to think about these changes being a problem when they're affecting people's everyday lives, their ability to do the things they need to every day and their ability to enjoy events that they used to, whether that's their baby or exercise or just spending time with friends and family. I always talk to my patients about mood from the first time they come into clinic so that they're aware as pregnancy ebbs and flows, they move into that postpartum period that we're available for any of those changes. And I encourage them if they're not feeling like themselves or they're struggling to reach out. We often use standardized questionnaires um, there are several of them that help us to better sort through symptoms, know what's more normal and more affecting people's lives. And then we have a conversation about what the patient is experiencing. Sometimes that conversation itself, just acknowledging the emotions can be really helpful, but sometimes there are other options that we need to consider. And we can talk about some of those treatment options if those would be helpful for your listeners. Well, I'm wondering because uh, depression, you can find chemical imbalance in the brain when it comes to depression, um, which obviously can be be treated um, with medication. Um, so is there a physical evidence of a chemical imbalance when it comes or, you know, a change in hormones, change in the body chemistry when it comes to postpartum depression? Is there that physical link? Yeah, unfortunately, at this point, we don't have a blood test or a scan that we can do to diagnose depression, anxiety, other mood disorders. It's really based on the individual's experience of those symptoms and how they're affecting their life. That's where we start with the diagnosis and then move to treatment from. I think, um, you know, from a personal standpoint, that's very difficult for me because, you know, um, my kids now, they'll be three in March. They are pandemic babies. They were born in NICU. Um, as we move on to talk about your study, Dr. Schumann, these are a lot of the things that you really focused in on during the pandemic. Um, I, I, I was never diagnosed. Um, I never went back to my OBGYN after I delivered the twins. Um, obviously during the pandemic, it was very difficult, but I come from a mindset of, um, you can get through hard times. You can you know, you can work through it. You can prepare yourself prior to pregnancy. Um, I try to stay, stay really strong mentally. And I believe in um, my mental strength, so to speak. And I take great pride in that. So I believe in my ability to overcome. And I think, you know, going through these last couple of years, two and a half years, it's almost been really naive and almost, I relied on my strength as an athlete. You know, you know, you can overcome anything um, to the point where, Perhaps it was my downfall. And I said this on a different episode that my strength might have been my downfall. Um, but I think that's really hard for somebody like me who I want to see the physical evidence. I want to understand the science behind it. I don't want to just think that, you know, somehow, some way I have this mental depression because I'm weak or I wasn't able to get through all this stress. And, and we all go through it. You know, new moms go through this. It's a change in life circumstances. You have less time for yourself. Obviously, these are very much givens when it comes to, to parenthood. Um, 
And, and so if we all are aware of those struggles going into it, how come we can't get ourselves out of it with, without the help? I speak to patients about this all the time, particularly people who have not faced a challenge like this before that they weren't able to overcome through their own grit and determination. And I think there are a couple of things standing um, in the way of moving through depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders in the postpartum period and in pregnancy. The first is the myth of motherhood. We tell pregnant and postpartum people that they're supposed to glow. They're supposed to bask in the glory of this new life that they're growing and that it's supposed to be easy. And the biggest challenge is where to find ice cream when you have a craving. Um, but you know, and I know as a mom that there is so much more to pregnancy in the postpartum period. There are a lot of discomforts. Your body is changing, you have heartburn and back pain and all of these things that aren't so glamorous. And the postpartum period, no matter how much you love your children, it is a challenge. Your body is recovering from vaginal birth or from a cesarean birth. You are also trying to learn a new human and how to care for them, whether it's your first or your um, second or third, or you're having two at once. And you're sleep deprived, which we know contributes to mood symptoms. So I think all of those things are really standing in the way of people um, identifying this um, this very real issue that they're going through and feeling a lot of guilt about not having that glow in these times. I was going to say the other barrier is the mood disorder itself. Depression and anxiety may force people to withdraw, to not reach out to others around them, to have trouble with the activation that makes them feel like who they are. And so it would be like expecting someone to overcome their high blood pressure by just thinking about it. It doesn't work that way. We can't just make it happen. And uh, I think that that is the other piece really standing in the way for individuals. Have you found um, the statistics being higher with the first child or the last child, or does it matter? Alex, you probably know this from the clinical space too, but um, the postpartum depression can set in really at any time and with any child and it can be different. And so if you have um, postpartum depression, if you are suffering from that with a first child, you may be at higher risk to suffer from um, postpartum depression or other perinatal mood and anxiety disorders um, with subsequent children. Um, but even if you don't have any type of depressive symptoms after your first child, um, you still could be at risk for um, subsequent children and your other children that you have. Okay. Are there ongoing studies right now that looks into um, that that physical um, link between giving birth or being pregnant and postpartum depression? Yeah, we're always looking for better connections between physiology and mental health, as well as other patient experience measures. There are large biobanks that are looking at um, different hormones and biomarkers and trying to get to the bottom of these questions. But right now, these things are still exploratory. I don't think we'll see a, a physical test for postpartum depression anytime in the near future. Really? Okay. Um, how long have we as a society really been discussing postpartum depression and really been studying it and looking at it and educating new mothers? I don't, I mean, I don't really have the history on it. I do yeah. know that, I mean, mental health and mental illness has long been stigmatized and, um, you know, it's enacted stigma where, you know, clinicians or society itself stigmatize those who are suffering from mental illness and mental conditions. I think relatively recent, you know, recently, and I'm saying recently by, you know, the last decade or two decades, I think there's been an increased understanding that, um, struggling with mental illness is something that is not uh, your fault. Um, and it's something that we are realizing that is, um, it's, it's an illness and it's a diagnosis um, and that it can be treated. And so I think it's changing, not just with postpartum depression, but with any type of mental illness, um, even with things like substance use disorder, um, anxiety, uh, the seeking treatment and receiving treatment, there still is a considerable amount of stigma around these uh, topics and these diagnoses 
But at the same time, I feel like as society, we're moving a little bit in the right direction on recognizing the need for um, even those who don't have a diagnosed uh, mental illness, that treatment and therapy can still be helpful for them as they navigate um, mental health challenges. And because everybody has anxiety, everybody will go through um, times of, of experiencing depression. Um, it's when it becomes a disorder that we bring in some other treatments and they exist and they are helpful and effective in treating those um, symptoms. So I think um, when we started focusing more on it, I do not know, but I I would say that we are seeing increased attention to it um, in a way that is that it hopefully is moving in the right direction. We're able to identify it. We're able to help people. I think we have better treatment options than we had um, in the past. Um, and I think people are starting to recognize or not be as fearful to have some of those conversations with their providers and seek the care that they need. Well, I am very glad to hear that. Um, and, you know, my personal story, I, I, once again, I just feel so naive. You know, I go into pregnancy. Um, I feel good. We're excited. We've been trying uh, to get pregnant for some time. And we're very excited about this, this new chapter of our lives. Um, we move out to North Carolina in the woods on purpose to, to really give our kids this lifestyle that we want to give them. So I think all is going good. And I have a lot of, you know, we're the oldest parents of all of our friends group. We're, we're having kids at 38 and, and nobody really mentions anything about postnatal care or postpartum depression or any sort of anxiety after giving birth. All my friends are just like, I remember one of my girlfriends said, Hey, why don't you call me if you're struggling afterwards? Just call me. But no one, no one gave me, you know, educated me that this perhaps could happen. And looking back, and I know you don't understand things until you really go through them. It's like anything in life. And then, you know, everything starts opening up. And then all of a sudden, almost every single one of my friends were like, Oh yeah. I had it really bad with my third child and I couldn't even get off the couch. And all of a sudden, all these stories are coming into me and I'm like, where have you guys been for two years? You know? Um, so as much as we as a society are getting better at educating people and having these deeper discussions about mental health and we're getting rid of some of the stigma, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by the fact that people are still so quiet about it. It's there's still so many crickets around when somebody is pregnant. And perhaps it's because we want them to just enjoy their pregnancy and be happy. But it really would be nice to have a, a fair warning about all these changes in life that may occur, not just in life, because I think we are aware that your relationship with your husband could change. Um, the lack of time for yourself is obviously going to change your focus on these other individuals um, work. Everything is going to change. And I think there's that reality, but the reality of the mental health side, I still think there's not enough conversation out there. And maybe I didn't know where to go, but I have a lot of great friends with a lot of knowledge who didn't say a word. So I still think there is that stigma in society. How do we get past it? First, thank you so much for taking that first step and moving past the stigma and speaking about your own experiences. I think the sharing of stories is so powerful. The narratives that pregnant people and postpartum people can share can really be that turning point. And so I really appreciate you bringing this topic to an audience that may not um, be thinking about it in the moment. I think that, you know, starting with individuals is a really powerful place, but unfortunately it takes systemic change to really make things different. Um, and asking patients to be their own advocates is a big lift and a big request. And as a health system, we really are working to try and incorporate these topics for education and screening to help promote everyone's wellness, not just their health and their health outcomes. I think for a while, the problem was we just didn't know that this was a problem. Hmm. We weren't routinely screening for postpartum okay. depression. And when you don't ask, you don't know. And when you don't know, you can't do anything. And so after that, we went through a period where suddenly we were aware of all of these postpartum people who are suffering, but we didn't have the resources to address their needs. It takes a lot of infrastructure to deliver robust mental health care. You need to identify the need, have community linkages, and be able to deliver things in a way that meets the individual's need. 
For some of my patients, a conversation with me is enough. For some people, a supportive group is really what they need. That network of friends or family or even strangers who come together experiencing the same thing. For some people, individual therapy is really helpful. And for a lot of folks, that can be really scary when they don't know what that therapy session might entail. And for others, medication is really critical. And there have been a lot of barriers to overcome with the stigma of using medication in pregnancy or in the postpartum period with concerns about breastfeeding. There are folks across the country who are really working to make these resources available. There's an incredible group out of the University of North Carolina that has the fourth trimester project um, that is focused around how do we develop these resources and advocate for them in a patient-centered way. My group has um, developed an online video series so that people can get a sense of what might actually happen in a therapy session before they go. And those are all available to patients across the country at the click of a button. Um, But we have a lot of work to do, and it takes strong collaborations between patients and health systems, communities, and the payers. We need people to cover these services so that women aren't bearing those costs out of pocket. So it takes a village, really, to make this happen. Absolutely. I, I, I can see that. And I guess I assumed we, the medical world, was further along than perhaps we really are. But I am blown away once again by uh, the study that you guys did um, in regards to postpartum depression associated uh, and associated risk factors during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, It was one of the first studies done in this time period. Few studies have been done since, um, especially conducted in the United States that, like I said, describe these factors associated with postpartum depression during the COVID-19 pandemic. So to me, that is a very specific study. And it shows the work you guys are doing in a number of different ways when it comes to postpartum depression. So in regards to this study, um, first, Dr. Schumann, will you tell me more about the study and why you decided to conduct it? Yeah, so this study, um, though the paper that you're referencing is, um, there's a series of papers, they all come from the same study, a parent study that we called the COVID uh, Mamas Study. And it was uh, a study that was intended to explore uh, the effect of the pandemic or really pandemic experiences and the sequelae of the pandemic, um, such as worry about infection risk for yourself or for your infant, uh, social isolation, uh, from others, uh, masking, hospital policies changing. Um, so we knew at the beginning of the pandemic, we started seeing these things happening. And um, my team, uh, which includes uh, Dr. Peel as well, um, and we have a very large team that worked on this, we, we hypothesized that there would be some changes, that this would make it um, much more difficult um, and may increase the, um, the prevalence of postpartum depression, postpartum post-traumatic stress, um, and anxiety uh, in the postpartum time period, especially during COVID as, as we're navigating new challenges. Um, and so what we did is we, uh, we, we did a survey, a national survey that or what went out nationally, and we had people from 46 states um, responded. These were all um, birthing people who had a baby at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so we did the survey uh, in a at the beginning of the summer in 2020. And so everything was really early on. And so we didn't know very much. Um, There was uh, changes to, uh, you know, to isolation or to quarantine or to stay at home orders were done by counties, by states. It was nothing really national. We didn't really understand the trends of of really the infection nor um, how bad the infection could be and what it would mean for pregnancy. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of fear surrounding this, a lot of worry surrounding this, and you know one of the things that we found um, is that we did screen. We used a screener within our survey to screen for postpartum depression, and it's a similar screener that's used for um, in many clinics and when you see your OBGYN. And um, but it's not a diagnostic tool, so we were not diagnosing um, postpartum depression, but we were screening for it in our in our survey. And in our survey, um, out of 670 participants that we had, 38% of them uh, screened positive for postpartum depression. To kind of put that in perspective, um, as Dr. Peel mentioned earlier, there is um, anywhere from like one in five to one in eight uh, women would, uh, it was estimated, 
would struggle with postpartum depression um, in the U.S. prior to COVID-19. Um, our study has some limitations to it, but what we found within our particular sample is that um, our numbers were more like one in three. Um, and there could be many reasons for that. We did see some associations of uh, the pandemic and uh, worry about infection risk or isolation and the association that has with increasing your risk for postpartum depression. Um, but the other thing that I also keep in mind is, is we were actually screening participants anonymously, right? They were not in their provider's office filling out a questionnaire. And so whether or not this is drastically different from pre-pandemic um, numbers is really still to be seen because maybe the pre-pandemic numbers are actually underestimates of how bad the problem actually is. And this comes back to your question about um, in our discussion about stigma, too, is that it is very, very hard um, to fill out a, a self a questionnaire about yourself and about your mental health to your provider, knowing that that might kick off a series of events for you. Um, and that series of events may lead to a diagnosis, which to a patient sometimes feels like a labeling of this is who I am now. Um, I have this diagnosis. Then that leads to treatment um, and other things. And then people are going to know this about you. And, and the, so there's a stigma around it. And so I, I hypothesize that some people avoid that stigma um, by um, by maybe not completing the screener as, as honestly as they may, they may be feeling because of what that leads to. And so with our study, just by the nature of it being anonymous, we might've actually been re, uh, getting actual honest answers, um, from people. So, but we did find associations that were, um, like isolation, worry about infection risk for yourself or your baby could increase these things, you know, and asking the, um, the participants, they were allowed to kind of share their own thoughts about the pandemic and, um, you know, above and beyond what a survey can measure and sharing their own words of their experiences. And, you know, we found numerous things that could be associated with increased risk for postpartum depression, even from just their, their own words. Um, our participants were expressing that there was this heightened level of distress um, and there is various reasons for that. Um, one is just the distress surrounding that whether or not they're going to get infected, how that's going to affect their infant. Um, there was heightened level of distress or this feeling of like guilt, especially after you had your baby. And now it's usually when you have your baby, people come to the hospital, they come to visit you, you go home, all of your family comes over, they want to see your infant, they bring their children with them. And now you have, you know, you're as a mother, you are recovering from your delivery and now you have all these people over and it's this, you know, fun time and it's this exciting time. Um, and that was, and that, that was really limited during the pandemic. And so um, people felt very isolated and they also felt this guilt that like, do I, for my baby, do I take my baby out of the home and take them to play dates? Do I take them to visit other people that could potentially expose them to uh, a COVID-19 infection? And that could be very, um, especially for a very vulnerable infant, um, it could be very detrimental to their health. But then also they're struggling with, well, this is really important for um, their own development as an infant. And so there's kind of this, like what, what they talked about was this maternal guilt of no matter what I did, I felt like I was doing the wrong thing. Um, the other thing that was really interesting is within our study, we found that those who uh, were breastfeeding had a less or a decreased risk of uh, screening positive for postpartum depression. And there's a lot of reasons for um, for that. But what was interesting during the COVID pandemic, as the health systems were starting to change in response to trying to reduce the, um, the infection risk within the health system itself, um, we started to change the services that were provided. And some of those services are like lactation consultants. And so, for example, one of our participants expressed that now they're, um, they needed support for lactation and that lactation support was provided on Zoom versus in person. Well, that creates a whole nother barrier for a woman to be, um, to have a very hands-on type of experience through video, which is almost more vulnerable than to do actually in person with somebody. Okay. And so a lot of those, the breastfeeding experiences um, is something else we've looked at. And that is something that was um, participants were reporting themselves that it was adversely affected. Um, and we saw an increase in just really a lot of adverse symptoms that were very hard um, to treat, um, whether it be issues with um, production, um, issues, um, physical issues uh, with breastfeeding, um, 
correct nipples, um, pain and other things that are harder to, they, they didn't have as much access maybe to their uh, clinicians at that time, because we went a lot to telemedicine, which was actually a great thing, right? So we're reducing maybe the spread of infection, but at the same time, there's some of these um, effects that I think we didn't know or didn't anticipate at the time because we just, we didn't know. Um, so those are some of the, some of the things that we found within that particular, um, within that particular study. We also found that was associated with postpartum depression is also postpartum post-traumatic stress. And so it's this, it's like PTSD from the experience. And there's a lot of reasons why uh, birthing patients may experience PTSD um, that has nothing to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so our study was limited in that regard, but we did find some associations with um, exposure to COVID-19 and an increase in symptoms. Within our sample, again, of 670 birthing patients, we found that um, 99% of them reported one symptom of PTSD out of, and there's 21 total symptoms for a diagnosis. So they all had at least one symptom with um, the average number of symptoms being eight. And so oh. postpartum depression and postpartum post-traumatic stress um, from a symptom standpoint, as well as, um, uh, you know, um, what causes these things, they're very, they're really related and highly associated together. And so we're seeing, we saw increases in both of these things during the pandemic, early pandemic. And I know things are changing. Pandemic seems to be changing sometimes. Oh, it feels like everything is so much better now. And then we're hit with another strain of COVID-19 that then goes through and, and everybody is uh, having high fevers again and having to spend time at home. And then it kind of evens off. But I still think some of the changes to the healthcare system that we made um, some of those, the long lasting effects that some of these people who birthed during COVID, especially early on, that those things, um, we still need to have attention to them and not forget about the people that went through some of these traumatic experiences um, early in the pandemic and how that affects them even long term. I never even thought about PTSD um, with with everything, you know, a woman goes through and a family goes through giving birth or having a cesarean. Um, and even the the experience, whether it's being in NICU or uh, breastfeeding, I mean, all of it could, I guess, bring on PTSD. And that's something that you don't even think about. That's uh, well, in the NICU. I mean, we did. A, there's a few a few studies that I participated in um, where we under we were trying to figure out how hospitals were doing NICU visitation policies during COVID nineteen. And so one of the things just to think about is a lot of hospitals, what they did, especially early on, is they limited the visitors to the NICU. And so there are various approaches to this. One is if the mom um, was suspected to have COVID-19, she was not allowed to visit her infant in the NICU. So your baby is, is whisked away to a NICU because they require that type of care. And then the mother was unable to visit because of uh, her infection. Um, some NICUs had only one parent allowed to visit. And so it, either, it would either be, you know, the mother or the partner um, would be allowed to visit and only at certain time points or certain time periods. And so it made it the NICU itself and an admission to a NICU is um, can be very traumatizing outside of the pandemic. Right. Um, but when you add restrictions on when you're able to visit your infant, um, and, and the fear that you're in that you visiting your infant, you may introduce your infant to an infection um, is, is a, as a real fear and can cause, um, some of those PTSD type symptoms. So you, uh, hypothesized, um, that there'd be an increase in postpartum depression during the pandemic. When did you make this hypothesis? That was really because early, yeah. early, er, early pandemic or pre-pandemic? Early pandemic. Okay. And so once the, um, so we started the pandemic in the United States, um, you know, really set in around uh, February um, of 2020. And so by the time March and April rolled around, that's when uh, my team started putting together the study and the, um, the survey went out early that summer. So these were all okay. people who were postpartum um, who were completing it because we wanted to understand kind of their experiences. Um, about having it, having an infant during that first um, kind of wave of the COVID pandemic. Well, I will be a part of your next study, if you would like. <laughs> um, our kids were born on March 4th. Uh, they were twins, obviously pandemic babies. We were in NICU for 20 days. Uh, they were just under five pounds. They were healthy, but they were premature, um, as is common with twins. Um, but 20 days in the NICU during a pandemic, at that point in time, my husband and I, we visited every day. Um, we drove about an hour and a half there, stayed all day, came back home, did it again in the morning. And we got the news to us that there could only be one visitor. 
from here on out. And I couldn't imagine doing it without without my husband. And and he couldn't imagine not visiting. Um, so and I was working on breastfeeding, so I had to be there. I, I it was we fought with the team of doctors um, because our our babies were healthy. Um, they were breastfeeding. Uh, they were gaining weight, and we actually realized that it'd be safer at home than in NICU at this at this juncture um, of the stay for our mental health, for us to be a family. It was 20 days in the NICU. Everybody was healthy, and we had to absolutely fight with the doctors because we said, well, what if it, there's two babies? So doesn't that mean each baby gets a visitor, you know, mom and dad? But those weren't the rules. Um, so we we actually fought our way out of NICU just in time before they limited the the visiting restrictions. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't, you know, looking back, it it is very crazy what we as parents went through during that time of the pandemic. I don't think I left the house for probably a year and a half. Um, like I said, thank goodness we have 60 acres. We live in the mountains on the river. So I got plenty of exercise. We, I felt healthy and that regard, you know, I was able to to get outside and be with my babies and walk them and hike them. But we were isolated. We didn't get to see family and friends. Most of my friends hadn't even met our babies until this this holiday season for the first time. And that is what really, really broke my heart is that I couldn't share these beautiful little beings that we just brought into the world with the people that meant the most to me. That was the hardest part. And I didn't realize it because we were such dedicated, great parents, day in and day out, waking up, doing everything we needed to do. And and then just feeling alone all the time, but alone because of the pandemic. And it wasn't like I could do anything about it. I, we couldn't get on a plane and travel to the West Coast. Uh, we didn't have any friends over. So I think that was the, the really difficult part for us. Um, and then I wanted to ask you about chemical dependency and those who have been through PTSD and postpartum depression. Um, for me, like many people throughout the pandemic, um, started to drink a little bit more. I was done breastfeeding. I got through, my goal was eight months breastfeeding with twins. I breastfed for six months with the twins. Um, and I pumped and, and my, my husband was able to, to bottle feed as well. So we were a good team. Um, but of course, you know, breastfeeding is, is very, very, just stressful for anybody. My mother came to town. She has her own ways of doing things, sneaking the rice into the into the the bottle and making the nipple a little bit bigger for a faster flow. So they didn't want to come back to my nipples. I mean, it, you know, the whole thing. So, but but we did it and we rocked it and it was awesome. But it was also very stressful and very difficult. Um, where was I going? So this is my story, obviously. Uh, oh, so after breastfeeding, yeah, I found myself having maybe instead of a drink at night, it might've been two drinks or instead of a glass of wine, I had a whiskey at night. And really that is kind of what I fell back on was some sort of dependency at night. And I felt like I deserved it. I felt like, oh, I got the babies down. We have twins. It was a long day. Oh my goodness. Let me sit down with my husband and just relax with a drink. And I was wondering if you see that as well in, in people with postpartum depression or PTSD. Yeah, I think you've hit on some really important topics, the immense social isolation that moms can feel. And while we're talking about that in the context of the pandemic, this is something that many people experience, having difficulty leaving the house, whether it's because of transportation insecurity or the challenge of having a new baby, of living away from family and not having that social support near them. These are things that are really salient for our patients, and we aren't asking right now. So many people like you are suffering alone, not knowing that there are resources available to help them. I think when people face challenges that they can't overcome, they figure out the ways that they can manage them in the moment. Exactly. And this goes back to what you were talking about with how can we prepare people during pregnancy? I think there are a lot of great coping strategies, whether that's using cognitive behavioral therapy to reshape negative emotions using mindfulness to really find enjoyment and pleasure in the moment, whether that's a piece of chocolate or a breathing exercise or a chance to take a walk in a beautiful location. And then also naming these things and really being prepared for when they strike and knowing how you can manage them. 
whether that's a supportive partner or an outreach to friends who have been through similar things. I think there are lots of ways, just like people make a birth plan to help them through the expected and unexpected of the delivery hospitalization to really think about their postpartum plan and what strategies they can use to help manage the expected, sleeplessness, needing to feed the baby, challenges of breastfeeding, but also the unexpected, these low moments, the feeling of isolation, whatever that experience might be. And I think that is really how we can arm pregnant and postpartum people to be more successful and not necessarily fall back on coping strategies that, that don't help as much outside of the moment. Okay. Uh, Dr. Schumann, how can this information from the study um, help change policies moving forward? And where where do you go from this initial study? Um, like you said, there were limitations of this study. So how does it help, help the healthcare system moving forward? And what further studies are you going to do? Yeah, so I think um, I like to call the, the study that we did as a, a signal. It's a signal um, that something is going on here. Um, and so the, you know, the increase that we saw, it's not enough that the type of study that we did in the design of the study um, itself can inform policy, but it's not enough. And so um, larger studies, um, because we have a convenient sample, people had to opt in. They decided they wanted to participate. Maybe the people that participated were people who were drastically affected by the pandemic more so than others. And so there's some of those biases that exist in the type of study that we did, um, but larger studies are needed. But before we even get to those studies, we also need just to do a better job of screening um, for some of these um, mental health conditions that are, you know, that we know um, our people are can be experiencing and they can experience them in the postpartum time period, even up until a year later. Um, and so I think by screening better and having better data um, is going to be really, really important. And some of that data does rely on um, the patient because this is, again, as Dr. Peel stated, this is not something that we have a blood test for. It requires um, patients to be vulnerable about what they're experiencing. And without that vulnerability, we're um, unable to help um, because we can't identify it. Um, and then also it's going to be it's not going to help us with um, the data that would be needed to inform um, anything on, from a large policy kind of, of basis. I think one of the things from these studies that was really important to me, especially, and I know you're talking about uh, this is uh, in the beginning, you know, what do men do about this? Because as a man and as a dad, and I, you know, I got to see this firsthand from that perspective, um, you know, one of the things that was really interesting, and I think um, eye-opening for me in this study was that Women in our study, I, I was getting, as I was reading through their comments and looking through their data, it was they felt fairly alone. And um, and it wasn't that they were, but when we, we had a measure within our survey that measured social isolation, and nobody was, um, at least uh, the majority was not socially isolated. They had somebody um, that was their either their partner, husband, spouse, otherwise um, that was their family member. They had social support that was available to them. Um, but at the same time, it felt isolating. And this idea that taking on motherhood and taking care of infants, um, a lot of times, I think as a society too, in a very traditional society, um, it falls on the shoulders of mothers. Um, and so, and they bear a lot of that responsibility. Um, and that's not just the care of the infant, but also the care of themselves. And so, um, and I'm, I was astounded by the resiliency of women. I always am, especially with the work that I do. Um, it's incredible. And I think, um, I'm very thankful that men do not have to go through this or do this because we probably would not be having any babies if that was the case. Um, but I think one of the things that's really important, especially for, you know, this is a, a, you know, a very general statement, but a lot of men like to fix things. Right. And so um, when men are, whether it's uh, your, your, your partner or if it's your, you know, your sister or a friend who's going through some of this, it's being mindful that even though that they had a baby and it could be a very exciting time, um, they may be struggling with some um, uh, mental health issues underneath. That's not their fault. This is a part. This is this is a part of uh, the birthing experience, and um, it's almost normalizing the. Um, not to say that postpartum depression is normal, but it's normalizing that some of these experiences, um, so that people don't feel like they're on the outskirts of this. 
but also realizing that we're not here to come in as support people. And so I'm putting myself back into the position of a father and husband, but it's to come in and try to fix it for them. Cause that's what we want to do. And we want to understand like, why are you feeling this way? You had, you just had a baby. You should be so happy. You should be as Dr. Peel said glowing. Right. Um, and so we have this expectation of what it looks like. And, um, and we want, we want our, you know, when you love somebody or care for somebody, you want them to be experiencing it in that way. And you, you just want them to like, you know, snap out of it. That's the way a lot of times why mental health is so stigmatized is because you think you can tell somebody who's struggling with anxiety just to stop worrying right and that's going to fix it for them or don't be so sad you're depressed don't be so sad focus on the happy things um you can't it it doesn't work like that and that's not the fix for it um and so i think part of this is as a society and to move this forward is this 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 is not just a um a women's health issue this is a this is a, a family unit issue this is a society issue this is a community issue of how we support people who go through um, a very uh, incredible experience but also a very challenging experience of giving birth um and supporting them especially afterwards and i think one of the things that's very interesting to me is the change from um Prenat- the prenatal time period when most of the attention from the medical community um, is on the mother and even from your social community is on you as a pregnant person. You're very excited. How's your pregnancy going? Um, you have your visits, your prenatal care visits, and then you have your baby and the attention seems to sometimes shift, right? It's off of mom now who just went through a very traumatic experience delivering an infant or in your case, twins and in the NICU. And the attention is now on the infants, right? The infants now have their pediatrician visits are all needing to be set up. Um, You need to take care of them. They need to eat every two to three hours. They need to make sure they are getting enough sleep. And so all that, that transition is to realize that we also need to focus on these moms too. And because they're, I mean, it's a major part of that family unit, a major part of our communities. And it's not just a women's health issue. It's a, it's a, it's an issue for all of us. Um, I have learned recently a lot about self-care and lack thereof, and not just for me, for my husband as well. I mean, uh, yeah, look, looking at what he has gone through. I mean, he's been here every single day. We haven't had childcare, not once. We haven't put our kids into any type of, of, of school setting uh, yet. Um, so he's been here living it day in and day out. And I have a great amount of respect for my husband for taking on what most people would call the traditional mother role, but we're in it together and it's a very equal partnership. And I'm proud of that. But he has sacrificed a lot as well. And when you talk about this being a society issue, a community issue, a, a not just a, a, a woman's issue, but a man's issue as well. Um, fathers are fathers as well. You know, yes, we put on the, the motherly cap um, and, you know, even same sex partners. If there's no male involved, it doesn't matter. The partner is still going through so much change as well. And I think it's very important to put a lot of focus on that aspect as well as one who gave birth. Um, I do see two, uh, I think, handsome young boys behind you. Is that correct, Dr. Schumann? Oh, are they home from school? <laughs> no, no, no. In the, in, the in, in your bookcase over there, I'm assuming you have two boys? Yeah, I have two boys and a daughter. Oh, and a daughter. Okay, wonderful. So you've been through it. You've definitely been through it. And uh, can you attest to the fact that there is stress on the father's part as well? There is. I mean, there is a lot of stress. Um, and and I think, I mean, I like, I like how you focused on, you know, the, the family and that this is something it's in, you know, we can focus on fathers and, and, and researchers and clinicians will do this, right? They'll, they'll say, what does the, what does the father need? What does the partner need? What does the, the, the birthing patient need? What is the, um, what do the children need of other siblings as this is going on? Um, but it's this idea of family centered care. And so, and that's something that within the healthcare system, you know, we, it's, it's, become really prominent is how do we actually organize our care around the family um, and make sure that the family are involved in care. And so, especially with the NICU settings, we see this a lot is engaging the family as, um, uh, as care workers, basically, because you're providing, especially as a, a breastfeeding mother, or even if you're formula feeding, you're feeding your infant and you can provide care that nurses and physicians in the hospital cannot provide. You're not going to walk into a NICU and see a nurse uh, breastfeeding your infant or holding your infant skin to skin, right? It's, it's, it's funny, but it's, it's, you wouldn't see that you provide something that's entirely unique, but incredibly important and critically important 
um, to uh, development, uh, infant development, um, and especially for for Nick for those NICU babies. Um, and that's why one of the things we realized is we start, you know, there's this time when visitation in the hospital became the only those who were essential workers, right? We had this kind of like this phrase came out of like essential workers are allowed to go into work and do these things, or these are the people who are allowed to be in these types of spaces. And one of the things that we did um, as a team and also um, two national organizations, um, nursing organizations, uh, put a position statement um, that reflected this is that parents themselves are essential workers. And that's one of the things that we forgot about when the pandemic happened is we started to take them out of the healthcare system in fear of in protection. We were trying to protect, right? So this comes out of like, I think, of trying to do good, right? That's what we as the medical community. That's what we're committed to do. And in trying to do good, one of the um, things that we realized as a result of that is that we were kind of um, excluding e other essential care workers that are so important out of that kind of system. And so um, there's obviously a balance that needs to happen there. But one of the things I think that um, hopefully we see moving forward, not only for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, but also for um, those babies who are sick and require NICU care is a much more family-centered approach to this um, that allows or allows parents to visit and allows parents to be engaged in the care that's being provided to their infant. Um, but also it gives a sense of control back. I think, um, you know, one of the things that was during the pandemic that was so interesting is that as hospitals were changing their policies, um, Dr. Peel mentioned these, the, the, um, your birthing plans and things like that. Those were all, those, those were all thrown away, right? Because you had a plan and all of a sudden you wanted your baby, you know, you, some people want their plan to have the, the first face that their baby sees or something to be their, their mother's. And now their mother is wearing a mask. And so from an infant perspective and their eye development, it's, it's, it may not matter as much, but from a mother's perspective and the feeling of their infant, seeing them for the first time with a mask across their face, um, can be something that's a really hard, you know, hard to, it's hard to deal with. People were changing their birthing plans of having um, maybe an out of hospital um, birth experience or at home birth, um, moving it into a hospital system and being afraid of going to the hospital system for that, um, or moving it from the hospital as a plan to an at home um, birth. Mm -hmm. And maybe that um, they were pursuing, uh, you know, clinicians or others who that might have not been the right or the best step forward for themselves. And so, we started losing a little bit of this uh, kind of control. And hopefully um, as we're moving you know, out of this pandemic, we're able to give, especially mothers, some control over their birthing experience again, um, as well as allowing the family to be much more involved in that care and have control of their, of their infants. I think it is really important to think back to where we were in March, 2020, when Clayton's study first started. We were putting t-shirts on our faces, we were locking down in our homes. We were wiping down our groceries. I think it was a time of such fear for everyone, a, a point where we had no idea what this pandemic was or how it was going to affect anyone. And I do want to make sure we acknowledge that the health systems were doing everything they could in that moment to keep people safe. This was a scary virus. People were dying from it. And we wanted to make sure that everyone was safe. And I think that. Our data on outpatient care delivery, people's experiences as the pandemic has waned, has showed that we've really learned those lessons on how to keep people safe while also maintaining autonomy and that sense of connection. Um, from the outpatient setting, we've really evolved our virtual care offerings so that it's a bonus for people, not a requirement. Mm -hmm. We've seen how online pregnancy support can make services more accessible to people who couldn't get to them before. And we've really been able to move that autonomy back onto labor and delivery in a way that really just wasn't possible from March to May of 2020. But soon after, we were able to react, no, at least with the limited data that was available, how we could keep people safe, but also satisfied in that moment. Um. It's wonderful to see that we're giving women back uh, the, the control, you know, to make their decisions in the birthing process. Unfortunately, I live in the state of North Carolina, and we did not have the legal right to have an at-home birth, even though, don't worry, we were still going to pay under the table with a wonderful midwife uh, should that should that have been presented to us, that opportunity been presented to us. Um, I had to make it to 
I think 36 weeks for our midwife to feel comfortable giving an at-home birth. And I was at 35 and a half weeks. So I, I needed about three more days. Nonetheless, um, I couldn't be more grateful to have had the experience that we had in NICU. And the reason why I said that, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's not how I desired it to happen, but we it, it's clear to me how much we actually fall back on the medical system. Um, these new cute nurses taught us everything that we needed to know about taking care of a little tiny four pound baby that you could fit in the palm of my husband's hand. And it was beautiful the way they moved around, the way they moved about with such care and ease and a sense of confidence and calmness. And I, I, I am so grateful to have had that experience because I learned so much from those beautiful, incredible NICU nurses. And same with my husband. And we actually got the time to come back home, rejuvenate, you know, get ready to, to go spend the day at the hospital again. And we actually had those 20 days of learning how to take care of a baby before coming home. So we are actually really grateful. It was it was hard in a number of ways. I think I struggled with some sense of postpartum depression, some sense of PTSD that I'm recognizing for the first time. Um, thanks to you, Dr. Schumann. But I, I won't take that experience away because I am very, very grateful to all of the doctors and workers and the essential workers during the time of the pandemic. Um, I did want to ask you what we can expect. Well, obviously, we're going to expect more pandemics, I would assume, in our lifetime. Um, so your ongoing study, I would assume, is going to have lasting, lasting impact. So I want to thank both of you for your work. Um, and I want to know where you go next with, with this study and where we're going to go from here in the future. But I do know that your studies is going to help a lot of families, especially when we see the next pandemic. Yeah, I think um, with our particular study, you know, the, the next step that we're, we're doing now is we realized um, our sample from the original study was predominantly white and middle class and married. And so the experiences, we did a, a great job in that study, I think, it, describing the experiences of that demographic. Um, but we do know that the pandemic itself affected people from um, non-white communities or other type of socioeconomic type uh, communities differently, um, and that the experiences could also uh, vary based on that. And the social support is different culturally as well. And so we have another study um, that's going on right now called the COVID Mamas of Color Study. Um, where we're trying to specifically um, describe the experiences of women of color um, uh, during the prenatal and postpartum time period. And it's a different stage of the pandemic. So it's not, it's not going to be directly comparable to our first study, but, um, but I think it's going to be novel, right? It's relevant to what's happening now. Um, some of the work also that I'm, I'm moving forward from this is uh, the stigma that surrounds postpartum depression and other types of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Is, is a real thing. And we don't, we don't have great ways to address this. And so oftentimes what we do um, is the first kind of um, approach is to do education, right? And so people, uh, there might be a stigma surrounding this because people just aren't educated on that. And that's really important. And there's um, major organizations that have initiatives to try to improve the education of people in the community about some of these conditions, um, as well as patients themselves. Um, but I think there's something else that we need to do. And that's where some of my work is focusing on how do we, um, we do this all the time. We, we, when we see somebody in the grocery store, we pass by somebody, right? We see them and we make, we, we see them through our own lens, right? And we, we anticipate or we add context to what their life and what they're experiencing. And so, for example, you see a mother holding an infant, you're thinking through a lens of, oh, they're probably, she's probably very happy. She just had an infant. This is a very exciting time period for her. But when you, if you take the time to listen to the mother and understand her experiences, maybe it's very different for her. Um, and so sometimes what we do is we bring in some of these um, stigmas and it's based on this idea that we have um, these preconceived kind of assumptions about others without allowing them to speak for themselves. And so some of my work is actually, I, I utilize um, art teaching methods and I collaborate with a museum of art to use art to change our perspective on how we see others um, for many different things. One of the things that I'm specifically looking at right now is perinatal substance use. So the use of substances during the prenatal time period. 
um, and stigma surrounding that, but it is applicable really to any type of stigma or judgment or bias, um, is that we can use art to inform how we, you know, how we see others and how we view others and learn about ourselves too, that we do this all the time that we just assume something when we see someone based on what they look like, or based on what's around in their room, um, um, or within that context. So some of my work is going to be trying to address that stigma, um, kind of head on, um, in order to, uh, contribute to the ongoing educational efforts. Um, so that's my work. And I know Dr. Peel has some very exciting work in the space too that I know she would love to talk about. Well, I find that one quick question. I know you guys yeah. got to go and thank you so much for your time today. Um, I find that absolutely fascinating. How do you address the stigma or seeing somebody through your own lens through art? Can you give me an example of an art yeah. piece or... Yeah. So um, we, what we do is we actually utilize um, stuff that um, a, a certain type of teaching method that's done in um, art museums um, and other types of art programs where um, it's perspective taking utilizing a piece of art. So we use a certain style of art, which is documentary style street photography. Um, and so it's an actual real person you're looking at. And we have people um, look at the image and we do it primarily right now with healthcare workers, but we also have um, explored this for people who are struggling with postpartum depression themselves and about the self-stigma and kind of what they're experiencing. And because they're going to anticipate sometimes that the clinician themselves is going to stigmatize them. Right. And so they're almost they're assuming something about the clinician before they even meet the clinician. Mm -hmm. And so when they view the art piece, we facilitate um, taking a third person perspective, looking at the image. And when they look at the image, we ask to say, as a healthcare worker, um, what do you see here? What do you want to know more about? Healthcare workers are trained to assess, right? We are trained to assess, to try to fix, to try to solve. Um, and, and so what we do is we, we, we use all of our senses and all the tools that we have. But usually one of those first tools we have is just our eyes. And what we see when you walk into a patient's room and they're sitting in the bed, um, you know, what do you see? And so um, typically what we find is when they're responding or looking at a certain type of photograph, they'll, um, they'll have a lot of critical um, assessments of that individual. If the individual, um, for example, is uh, if there's a McDonald's five years or five years, five miles down the road in the background of the photograph, um, what happens is sometimes the participants will take note of that and they'll say, oh, this person who's in the photograph may be um, suffering from um, nutritional deficiencies. They may be eating too much McDonald's. The McDonald's is, was way far and nothing against McDonald's, but it was way far down the road. And there, this is assumption based on the context of the image um, that people are starting to kind of create these stigmas or biases around this individual. Um, the individual was not eating McDonald's at the time, right? But we assumed it was, and we create the story about this person. Um, then we ask them to take a first person perspective where they kind of dive into the shoes of the person who's in the image and what is their experience like for them. Um, and so, for example, with that McDonald's kind of example, when you take that first person perspective, no one even mentions the McDonald's at all. Um, and so you're, you're focusing on these different things. And that's part of the, what clinicians do is we're trained to assess. Right. And that's and it's an important part of our training. Um, and it's important for us to do that. Um, but in doing so, sometimes we're bringing in some of those assumptions, stigmas, biases, um, and, and that's going to um right off the bat, even before we actually begin treatment or talking with the patient. And so sometimes we need to take a step back and realize, um, let the patient speak for themselves and their experience speak for themselves. And that might help to dismantle some of that stigma or assumptions that you just automatically are going to do in your brain. Art, art can be used in so many incredible ways, can't it? It's really powerful. And the different perspectives that you take on it, I mean, lead to different things. And it leads to understanding like who you are and your brain does this automatically. There's a, the, the stigma is also, an, a, 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 there's a physical biochemical thing in your brain that happens and your brain is really efficient, right? And it creates shortcuts. And as you experience things throughout your life, your brain is really efficient, creating these shortcuts in your thinking where you see somebody and you think they reflect something in your past or a previous experience that you have. And so your brain automatically makes some of these shortcuts, jumps to a conclusion about that individual. Um, and so what we're doing with art is we're, we're basically helping individuals identify when their brain might be doing this or that their brain does this automatically and to take a step back and say, you know what, I actually do this. I actually walk in and I might judge somebody or I might have an assumption about them that's just not true. And then at that moment is when I think is the best time to provide some of that education about postpartum depression, about um, substance use disorder, um, et cetera. So. Yeah, I was just going to share a little bit about where our work from the pandemic is going as well. Up until COVID, 
prenatal care had not changed in almost a century. We were still delivering visits in the exact same way that we had been in the early 1900s. But suddenly, everything transitioned. We were giving care more efficiently, really thinking about when people needed to come to the office and not asking them to come unnecessarily. We launched virtual visits, allowing people to connect from their home and have access to devices that put care in their own hands. They could measure their own blood pressure, feel empowerment from having those controls. And so we've been working on both the local and the national level to completely redesign prenatal care. Wow. To incorporate all of those important changes. And with that, we've been much more conscious about those non-medical factors that affect people's ability to successfully navigate pregnancy and parent, just as we've been talking about today. So our new national prenatal care guideline, which should be available starting in the fall of this year, will incorporate patients' medical needs, of course, because people need to be safe in pregnancy but also anticipatory guidance, really thinking about what people need to be prepared for this journey and social support. What services do we need to wrap around our patients to make sure that they are happy and healthy? We've been really centering patients in the middle of that work using human-centered design methods to understand how patients themselves might redesign this care and then incorporating their voices into these changes along the way. That's empowering. And incredible. Um, it looks like you guys have done a lot of work, <laughs> obviously, prior to the pandemic, but um, throughout the pandemic. So I believe that we're going to get some good after all um, through through the COVID-19 pandemic. There is some good coming out of it. Uh, Dr. Schumann, Dr. Peel, thank you so much for your incredible work. Um, I commend you both and I, and I thank you. I thank you both. And I'm going to continue to to uh, follow your studies. And I hope to get more information as we move forward. But thank you for changing the system. As you said, Dr. Peel, hasn't been changed since the early 1900s. That's incredible that we're finally making these, these shifts in understanding in, in prenatal and postnatal care. So thank you both very much. It's a very important topic to me and I know to so many of my listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for having us and and thank you for bringing light to it. I mean, one of the things that's really important is that you talked about why, um, you know, your friend's not talking about this as much or not hearing about it. And the more we talk about it and the more people um, like you who have, have these podcasts and have people um, that are interested in, in, in what you have to say and, and what's going on, I think it's um, I think it's really great. And I think it's something that's going to help to move that conversation forward and help to, um, you know, create change. So I appreciate you and sharing your story as well as is very powerful. Thank you very much. Thank you both for joining us on Hope Solo Speaks. Uh, thank you for all the wonderful work that you do. And I look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Thanks, Hope. Thank you. Hope Solo Speaks is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcast. Serious XM Podcasts.